Welcome back to another episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. I'm Brad Gordon, and in this episode, I've interviewed Rachel Doms. Rachel is 14 years into her career and has been an assistant residency program director for our emergency medicine residency for 11 of those years. She's now in a leading role for medical student development within our health system. She spent years building wisdom in some diverse areas like resident scheduling, creating care plans for patients, creating support plans for residents who are struggling, teaching procedural skills, stuff like that. In this interview, we got to talk about how Rachel got into emergency medicine, how she approaches giving feedback, something I think she's really good at, uh, structuring improvement plans for struggling residents, and how she picks things she gets herself into. She really has a strong sense of herself, and in my opinion, she's a great example of someone who's found their calling and is having a lot of fun with it. So let's get into it. Well, Rachel Doms, welcome to my positively deviant emergency medicine podcast. Uh, it's always a little awkward to start them because I just haven't quite gotten in the rhythm of the uh, yet, but we've been friends a long time and uh, thank you for spending time chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we are going to kind of go through a few different topics that I'd like to get into and learn more about you and the wisdom you've built up over the years. But, um, okay. you know, I mostly start with asking you directly, do you enjoy your work and why? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Launch into an answer here. Um, I, I, I really love what I do. And honestly, I feel like what I do and the fact that I get to be involved in education, that, if, that I get to be involved in working at a place like Regions makes a big difference in the fact that I'm most days pretty happy to go to work. Yeah. There are some exceptions, absolutely, but, but I love what I do. And uh, you described a few aspects of it. Does it feel like you've got a good balance of some of your administrative and uh, clinical things and teaching, non-clinical? I, I should say clinical teaching and non-teaching clinical is what I'm trying to get at. Um, I think that actually things have changed a lot for me over the last year. Oh, that's you know, true, hasn't it? Yep, yeah. Yep. And so just for anybody listening who doesn't know me and isn't from the region's shop, I had worked for 11 years as one of the assistant program directors at Health Partners for the emergency medicine residency and really liked what I did. But what I was doing was a lot of the operational stuff and a lot of the background stuff behind the residency. Um, and that was in addition to my regular shifts, my regular you know, other things that everybody has to do, whether they're in academics or not. And what I found over the years was it really led to a disjointed and kind of horrible schedule. Okay. That it was not only the shifts, but then since I was the operational person, I was going to operational and quality meetings. I was doing all the residency meetings and the didactic days. Um, and I was doing a lot of flipping. And over the last maybe five years or so, that had gotten a lot harder. And I don't know if that was just me getting older or if that had just me seeing that other people weren't necessarily working the kind of schedule that I was working. Right. And so this past summer, I actually gave up my assistant program director position and moved to working more on the medical student side of things. Okay. Um, I picked up the position through the uh, operation. Yeah. For basically, the health system. Operationally, yeah. <laughs> we'll stop dropping yeah. names and everything. Um, basically working as the physician lead for medical student education and working with a longitudinal student, student, uh, rotation that's happening at our hospital. And what it means is that I can consolidate my administrative days a lot more so that it's not two hours on a Tuesday and three hours on a Wednesday and one hour Thursday morning. I'm able to consolidate it a lot more. And I've actually found that that schedule has made a big difference, just that things are a lot more settled. Yeah. You use the term flipping. Yeah. That makes me think of like trying to get in back in or back on the grid for a particular meeting or mm -hmm when you have a shift on a different part of the day or something like that. Yeah. Is that and we have, you know, enough of our shifts and at 11 or at 1 11 PM and 1:30 AM. And then trying to get back for anything administrative in the morning is a little bit tricky. I work in St. Paul and I live in Hudson, Wisconsin. And so there's always a little bit of the drive time then yeah. that you have to add into it that it's fine to pop in just to do something for half an hour on a day. But by the time you add all that extra drive time, if I can consolidate things, I think it makes it better. Absolutely. Um, and I, it's funny because I live in St. Paul and sometimes being too close can also create this like, oh, I'll just run in for that type of thing. And yeah. and it, obviously it's less time, but 
um, just that broken, fragmented life, whether it's an hour or three hours, often ends up you plan your day around it, whether you want yeah. to or not. Yeah, and you then if you're doing something every day, yeah, it kind of builds up. Oh, I, I, um, I feel that. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and and so so making a change in that way did was it. Um, like was it scary was it there's a lot of like letting go or were you feeling pretty ready to uh, i mean just in terms of like both needing a change as well as um seeing an opportunity that you're like oh that's a new you know honestly the opportunity i had told myself a couple years ago so i'm now mid-career yeah i graduated from residency in 2004 um and have been at health partners and regions for about 14 years and so that definitely makes me one of the older people, maybe potentially within your audience, and yeah. that's okay. Um, but I had decided a couple of years ago that I was just going to keep my eyes open for opportunities. I wasn't interested in moving somewhere else to take an opportunity up. I'm not going to move to Madison to take another APD position. I'm, I'm with someone who has to stay where they are geographically. Um, and so I, I had decided that I was just going to watch and see if anything presented itself. And this position did, and it seemed like it was something interesting. And so yeah. it wasn't that I was actively, you know, hit right. the decision point of, I'm out of here today, no. I'll take the first thing that comes along. This had been a couple years in the making. Um, and it was something that once I interviewed for it and thought about it, decided that I really did just want to do something different, just for the sake of doing something different. Um, more just to get my fingers into other opportunities, yeah. other experiences, another group of people. What I found, though, is that it's a very different setup. Working with a residency means that there's a lot more of a feeling of family, the ability to you know, hang out with the residents and know everything about them. Right. Gets you a lot more closeness with the people that you're working with clinically, yeah. which I think can make a difference. And I'm a little worried. So this has only been a couple of months now since I made this change. And I'm a little worried since I... Since I stepped away from my assistant program director position, yeah. that I won't have that sense of family. We had a wellness retreat a couple months or a month or two ago, and yeah. just going to that after I had technically left the position yeah. was a little bit sad. Like it was yeah. this bittersweetness about, well, I'm kind of glad that I'm out of a lot of the schedule issues and a lot of yeah. the things that that needed to be done but weren't necessarily super fun to do. Um, but I looked around and thought, but I really love these people. Right. And I know that with the change that I made, it will be different. Um, and so it's been a little bit bittersweet. Well, and I guess that's, <clears throat> excuse me, the kind of, when I was asking that question, I think sometimes you can anticipate that loss and, and it might paralyze you to actually making a change because you feel um, like, boy, what would my life be like without mm -hmm. X? But I also know that that same thing is causing me heartache or problems on the other side I can't resolve it in another way and so I think sometimes it's just a matter of letting go and being open to new things like it sounds like at some point you felt like oh I'm just open to try something new and um, but that doesn't mean it's easy and um, I mean it sometimes it technically is easy but it's uh, you just find that oh there was some definitely some good parts of that party and there's life. that commitment to am I really going to do this like this is a change in clinical hours. Right. This is uncertainty. Initially, yeah. the position that I first picked up was only a point two, which would be more clinical hours. Right, right, right. And you know, there are a lot of <clears> thoughts <throat> about what does this mean for the other parts of my life. Right. You know, my boyfriend, his kids, trying to schedule things, right. even silly little things like theater tickets, and trying to figure out what that meant just logistically. Yeah. Um, but honestly, I think I was just at the point where I had I had gone through those soul-searching moments and yeah. got to the point where I just thought, all right, if the right thing comes along, I'm going to be okay taking it. Right. Okay. Well, and um, tell me more about, um, I, I've asked most of my guests about their clinical work and about the fulfillment they get from it mm -hmm. or the draining aspects of it, whether it's... <laughs> there are draining aspects? <laughs> um, I've been told there are. Um, and so I guess I'd like to look at um, kind of maybe just how you approach your shifts in general. Um, either how you get ready for one or how, when you show up or how, th how you kind of start things up there. Because that's been an area where we don't see each other do that a lot. But I think there's actually a lot of wisdom in just how you get things going on the clinic. Sure. Um, so for an average shift, 
I'll leave about half an hour before the shift starts, which gets me into the building maybe 10, 12 minutes before the shift actually begins. One of the stupid little things in my life that has made a huge difference is I paid for the covered good parking that we can oh, get yeah. so that I'm not driving around and going yeah. through the stress right before the shift of where am I going to park. And right. I would totally recommend it, whatever you do in your life, if you find these little creature comforts that make your soul happier, absolutely take advantage of them. Right. So I drive into our nice little underground parking lot in South Parking. Um, I tend to spend a little bit of time, maybe, you know, two, three minutes beforehand checking out the board and just seeing what I'm getting into yeah. as far as what's on the pod that I'm coming on to and how yeah. horrible does the waiting room look or does it look great? I'm not one of the people that looks at who I'm working with. Yeah. Um, anybody who has worked with me knows that I bring some candy every day as far as just... I Wait, what? <laughs> Back when I was a resident, there was a staff doctor Let's find the story brought, behind that. who brought food every day. And she brought cookies or vegetable trays or things from Sam's Club. I mean, she just brought different things every day. And that was at the county hospital where things were always a little bit hectic. And you would see her and just people would all turn around and go, oh, my God, Kathy's here. Like, this is fantastic. And we would go look to see what she had brought. And she always said that she did it as a show of appreciation for the people that she was working with. Yeah. Um, when I started as a staff, because I've been doing this now the entire time that I've been faculty, I I just decided that I was going to do something. And yeah. I'm not going to bake, I'll be honest. <laughs> I, it is not my strength. I have no domestic skills. And the thought of trying to figure out every single day what I was going to do was not the right thing. So I bring a little tiny bin of candy every day. And so most days when I'm coming in for my shifts, I'll go upstairs and grab the bin of candy. From um, the larger bin. Of from candy. the larger bin of candy that lives in my office <laughs> and and bring that downstairs. Um, most days I'll bring something to eat. Some days I do, some days I don't. It depends on the timing of the shift. To be honest, for a lot of shifts, I find that if I eat beforehand, it makes more sense. And then I just have a snack during the shift. Mm. Um, but I'll get settled in and log into Epic. Most of the time I'll get my notes appended as far as a sign-out note before we go through sign-out, just because then when we're talking, I can pay a little bit more attention and be doing a little bit less of the clicking as far as initiating the note. Um, and then I grab my pens because I have the same pens that I bring every day that are the ones another that I like. Comfort. Oh, yeah. Another, yeah, absolutely. Like, I embrace the little OCD issues where you're like, no, I need that pen or I don't think I can work. You know, grab some of the manila cards that we write down on, yeah. that we write down uh, patient information and sign-out yeah. stuff on. And then I'm pretty much ready to go, I think. And do you, um, and then when you're starting up with ships, and this gets into a little bit of talking about how you give feedback, but do you try to um, call it round with the learners, like talk about expectations? Uh, what do you want to get out of the shift, that type of thing? Or It really depends on who I'm working with. If I'm working with a medical student, um, since we have the advanced medical students who are doing their fourth year rotations who work with us, I absolutely do talk with them about, hey, how far are you into the rotation? Right. What have you done? Is there something specific you want to work on? Do you feel like you have an idea about how you want to present and how you want to do your notes? Because if not, we can talk about that. Um, I know that some people are very prescriptive, especially with the students about, you will present to me this way. I want this first. You know, either the differential or the plan, or you have to put in your own orders. I don't actually care what they do. I, I, I feel like as long as what we do gets the patient to the right place, I don't feel really strongly that they have to do it a certain way. Uh -huh. um, and so I leave it a little bit more open for them. Okay. If I'm working with interns, I'm a little bit more on the student side of things about, hey, yeah. what'd you just come off of? How you doing today? Um, the second and the third year residents, I feel like have things a little bit more down. And so I don't tend to... I don't tend to interfere as, or I don't tend to try and guide them specifically. I used to ask, what do you want to work for, work on specifically at the beginning of a shift? Yeah. And a lot of the time I was just getting meh answers about, oh, I just want to get through the shift. Yeah. I, uh, I still have, I still ask that, but I'm learning to kind of say I'm following it with options. Like, sure. And stuff that I think is under discussed or like, do you want to focus on, hard to see patients today do you want to focus on billing mm -hmm. and discussion you want me to play the billing game with you like what would you code this as kind of thing or sure. um it's so it's interesting to hear you say that because i i would agree and i'm glad to hear you say that like just asking what do you want to work on today of a second or third year doesn't yeah having said that though i used to work a lot with the residents that were struggling in some yeah. area or another and 
I'll be honest, if I knew that someone was struggling a little bit with something, um, if it was something that was out in the open, I would have no problem. I would take that resident aside and say, maybe, you know, I know you've been working on this or committing to a plan. And so I don't care what your plan is. I want you to have a plan with every single person. Yeah. And then we could talk about it from there, but don't try and please me, figure out what you want to do. And so for the residents that I knew were working on particular issues, I did sometimes get a little bit more prescriptive, but I think that was because of my inside knowledge from the residency. Well, and I know that you tried to share that in particular cases with the other staff docs yeah. to try to help them be consistent in yeah. just and sometimes it worked of, well and sometimes maybe not so much because people don't like Well, I think it would be hard as that resident to say, Well, here's what I'm supposed to tell you. Yes. Absolutely. Probably the ones that are doing it are winning the battle. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree. And people don't want to be seen as having a problem or having a weakness. They don't want everyone to know that their medical knowledge isn't that great or they're having problems committing to a plan. Um, And so there's a balance. And there's some of that, you know, criticizing private and praising public and trying to keep things so that there's the right amount of openness there. Right. Um, What kinds of things uh, do you, like, cause you stress on a shift? I mean... There's a common list of things that many people say, but I'm curious with individuals. I don't know that there's one specific answer. I really think it is kind of shift by shift. Okay. Um, From a patient point of view, I think that it is, for me, the personality disorders, the chemical dependency that I struggle the most with, and probably even more the personality disorders. It's the the borderlines and the antisocials Uh and the people that are really entitled and just not open to the fact that we're not going to give them what they think they need or what they want. Um, And I think the problem that I struggle with with them or the reason why they're difficult is just there's so much more that you have to invest in communication to actually get to the same point. And you can either choose to invest that, which then means you're doing less of other things during your shift, or you are then not giving them the attention that they could use. And nobody really walks away from that happy. Right. And so knowing that a lot of the times your ability to positively or or I guess I'll say bring your best self to those situations mm-hmm. um, depends on some of the, did you rest the night before and other things. But yes. do you feel like in general you do try to find your best self in those when you find yourself getting triggered or do you find it is still okay for some of them to kind of like go like just get through it and there's not gonna be i don't want to say give up but kind of cut your losses maybe the best way to put it i i'm laughing because we just had a horrible person yesterday that absolutely exemplifies this um and so i i think i really try and give people the benefit of the doubt yeah until they've burnt their bridges either with me directly or with us as a system yeah um but we had a patient yesterday who uh, had a lot of antisocial overtones and a lot of entitlement and a lot of neediness about something. And we spent eight hours trying to get him into a TCU and then arranged for a medical respite bed and uh, the specific equipment that he need. And then he decided that he didn't want that and that he yeah. wanted something else. And then he got nasty to our case manager. And, and you're like, I'm and done at with that you. point, I'm like, I'm done with you. You can yeah. either choose to take what we can offer you. And trust me, this is a really good thing that's going to maybe meet your needs, although who knows what your needs really are. And your choices are you can either take what we've set up or we can escort you to the waiting room. And if you think this is so easy to take care of on your own, then by all means do it on your own. But you've been here for far too long. And now that you've started being nasty, you've lied to us. Like this is just the point where we're going to cut it off. Yeah. Well, just as another piece of your background that you've had at work and trying to help build system responses to those types of care plans care plan patients (laughs) so that you could have this healthy response to behaviors that which is a whole whole art form yeah exactly but but it but i guess the reason i say that is as someone who's both experienced in building the system response Mm -hmm. experienced in just dealing with it yourself it's still normal to be pretty frustrated and stressed out by them is that a true statement i i think like you can, from day, not not with every patient and no, not no, no. with every, but absolutely yes. Like there are days where I get angry at patients, and that's when I know that I've just sort of hit my limit. Yeah. And well, so what do you do to, then? Do you if you have a systemized response or or just I don't think a I reaction? have a systemized response. 
I think that there are times where in that situation, it's the best thing for me to go and communicate directly with the patient. And I think there are some times where since we work with mid-levels, our PAs and our residents so much, sometimes it's the right thing to say, I'm not talking to that guy anymore. Right. Like, this is what he gets. He's not getting a narcotic prescription. Right. You go talk to him. And I think it's just different from patient to patient. And so I don't think I really have something that's my set response to those tricky ones. Well, and... um well, no, I think that's, I don't think I have a follow up on that one. I was like, I thought I had a place to go. And I'm like, I think you actually just answered it. So sometimes I deal with it. Sometimes I mean, I think we all sometimes too. just like take a breath and walk away. And I don't think there's tons of wisdom in that. Although I think the the wisdom is trying to notice when you've been triggered somehow and trying to mm-hmm. cycle it back. And I, I still get triggered by particularly verbal alcoholic, or I should say alcoholic typically alcoholic, but intoxicated patients who sure. who are getting aggressive with staff yeah. f- verbally and who have clearly made choices around like, just get me what I need, you know, which yeah. is often not the long-term needs. It's the make my immediate needs in right. front of me. And, and that's when I probably find myself like, well, then you can just get the hell out of here. And, and I don't like that. But honestly, the other part of that is I do think there's sometimes value in having those fairly raw emotions come out because I think particularly the staff around you seeing that you're human too, as well as sometimes like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm feeling, but I'm not the staff doc, so I can't express it quite like you can. I I feel like that's healthy-ish to a point. And so it's always for me calibrating, like you can't become totally unprofessional but sometimes a little bit of unprofessional is appropriate. Like it, you get to show your limits. Well, and I that's think what you I get mean. to show when you're frustrated by things. Yeah. Because they're, for the nurses to know that we agree with them, for the residents to know that we're all kind of feeling the same thing with this difficult patient, I think really is something that you can make into a learning experience. And I think when I first started as a staff, like we had dealt with enough people as residents that you felt like you sort of had your style down. And I don't think that was true at all. Yeah. You know, 14 years ago compared to today, I think I'm a very different person, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is probably, again, a good thing. <laughs> well, I almost want to ask you more about that specific <laughs> thing. Like, could, if you could articulate what that, what do you think there are any specific ways you can go like, boy, 14 years ago, I was doing this differently? Or... I think I tried to please the patients more 14 years ago. Yeah. And I think now... Again, I I know a little bit more about what my limits are. And maybe that comes with medical knowledge and systems knowledge, or maybe that just comes with my own personality getting a little bit more solidified. Um, The other thing that I think is a lot different is as a trainee, you're stuck always with your staff having the final say on what you do. And And that's just part of the context that the patient knows, that everybody knows. Like, yeah, you're saying that, but... Right, but I want to talk to your boss or the residents coming and trying to come up with a plan that's going to make you me happy as opposed to the plan that they actually want to do. And I find myself engaging the patient a lot more often. You know, even trying to set the limits and saying, no, I'm not going to do that, but here are two other choices. Which one would you rather do? And I find myself bargaining with the patients. Not I'm sorry, bargaining maybe isn't the right word, but engaging the patients and setting their own plan. And sometimes that's a difficult patients, but sometimes even that's, you know, the low risk chest pain kind of guy that you don't really think has cardiac issues to go in and say, do you want to do a stress test? We can set one up in a couple of days. You know, it's something that's an option or you don't have to do it necessarily, but let's talk about some of those things. And so I think even in my non-difficult patients, I work that risk versus benefit and different options discussions in a little bit more because I'm the one that has the ultimate say over what goes on with my patients. Sure. Do you feel like you have, um, it's a bit of a pivot, but the, um, like different gears during a shift, particularly if you're either working alone or you're trying to, you show up and there's, you know, 10 new patients to see, maybe that's a little too much, but six or seven new patients to see. I mean, in terms of your specific area where you're like, wait, this is all going to be me, whether it's the next 10 minutes or the next hour. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you think you work in the same way? Kind of like I, I get up to speed, I get some orders in, I or do my eval in some order. Do you, do you change up in any different way? If it's, if it's busy or when I'm working alone, I think I rely on our nurses a lot more. Yeah. Um, that they can room a person 
who's a 73-year-old with chest pain, and I can probably just ask the nurse, like, hey, is this just a standard cardiac workup? And it's not that I'm letting that person completely make the decision for me, but then if I know that there are five new patients to see pretty simultaneously, I feel like I can go back then, put in some orders, and then know that I've started something on that patient. Sure. you know, the orthopedic issue that needs some pain medication and an obvious x-ray. And most of the time, again, I think this kind of comes from experience. Most of the time, if I'm relying on the nurses, the workups are fairly accurate. Yeah. Sometimes I go back in and realize, whoa, this totally wasn't the story that I thought it was. And we have to go into another direction. But I feel like that's okay because I wouldn't necessarily have gotten to that patient any faster. Yeah. There are some times then that I do some unnecessary testing. The person that I walk out of the room and think, well, I guess I didn't really need that troponin. Um, you know, there, there are times where that yeah. isn't perfect, but I feel like it helps me manage people a little bit better that I know that, that I've gotten things started for them, even if I can't get in the room to see them immediately. And do you think you started like that out of residency or do you think you developed that? No, I think I developed, well... A little, no, I actually think I developed it. Like, I think you need to get comfortable with the patterns that you're seeing. And yeah. there's a lot of, you prob- you may or may not have delved into this, the research that goes along with developing from a novice to an expert. Yeah, I don't know that. Okay. I mean, I know of it. I know that it exists. I don't know any of the details. I did a lot with procedural competency yeah. during my time as the residency within the residency and there is some there are some very defined transitions that people make uh-huh. as they as they go from brand new to having done something for 20 years yeah and i think it really is that pattern recognition and the gut feeling that you learn to rely on that a lot more whereas sure. i think as a as a newer physician straight out of the residency box, I think you tend to want to kind of follow the rules and gather all the information, even though I know in emergency medicine, we're less beholden to that than some of our colleagues and other specialties. But I feel like it was really the experience that got me to that point where I was comfortable doing that. And do you, do you say that from what you know about the literature and both Mm -hmm. your own experience, like there's, there's no shortcuts to that. Like, are there like it's seeing patients, it's, listening to your gut <laughs> there so there are some shortcuts um and it comes down to a lot of that reflective practice about yeah what, and, and if you read about how to get how to get along that pathway faster uh-huh. um looking at what you've been doing on a day-to-day basis can make a difference to look back and say well what would i have done differently in that situation or how could i have done that because if you never stop to consider that you're never going to have those aha moments say yeah. like okay wait i could have done that differently yeah and they talk about things like the you know the your intern if they go in to do a fast exam with someone that was stabbed in the middle of the chest might still start with the right upper quadrant because that's where you start a fast exam right that's not where i care about i'm going straight to the heart and looking for the effusion yeah. I, and or the pneumothorax or whatever it is, but you you go from those like following the algorithms and following the rules to walking in and actually being able to step back and get past a lot of those more basic things and then make a higher level decision. Um, And so some of that really is the experience and the seeing people, but then some of that is looking back and saying, well, okay, it would have made sense if I had done things in a different order or handled that differently. And do you think at this point in your career, do you have any type of purposeful reflection steps that you do like follow-ups or i mean i i say that in the context of when you're in a residency program it's kind of part of the whole environment so i know that like just getting your case brought to a conference that is part of that Mm -hmm. so for me that's i rely on that actually a lot i sorry i don't have a clear explicit practice and most don't that i have talked to but i ask i I don't think that it's nothing formal that I do a hundred percent of the time. If I'm working with mid-levels, there are times at the end of the shift where I'll say, you know what? The one thing I would have done differently was this. Yeah. Or, you know, playing this back out, let's use this kind of as a teachable moment and look at something that didn't go great. And so I do think that I do that when I'm working with learners. Um, I don't think I do it as much when I'm on my own. Meaning just seeing patients primarily because we work more with, the residents and the PAs than we do seeing patients on our own at our shop. Right, 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 right. But I like having the ability to do both of those styles of things because I think you can grow in a little bit different ways. Yeah. Talking a little bit about like you kind of reflected with working with a mid-level, are there any specific, before we started, I had mentioned that I felt like you were 
particularly good at feedback and and in a way of what I mean by that, this is probably part of the meta aspect of what I'm asking is like your behavior of being able to tell somebody this is what I do differently, but with uh, with I think with a method that doesn't cause shame or cause um, a feeling of you're bad, but what I would what you did here is different. And I think I've struggled not making every resident uh, meeting or exceeding expectations, and I'm trying to look for hey. In the same way you said about earlier that most people don't want to hear that they're bad in any way, but we all, when we look and at ourselves... And especially the millennials. Yeah. Do you see that a lot? I oh, mean, good God. That's another whole podcast. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> but that's a lot of where you try to get to is like, hey, let me... Don't feel bad, mm-hmm. but there's still some room to move yes. and grow. Yeah. And, and I think you have to be honest with the people that you're working with. Yeah. Because telling people just good shift at the end of a shift isn't super useful to them. And that thought of reflective practice and where could I improve? I think that there are ways to be honest with a resident and say like, wow, I really wouldn't have done that. Or even to try and hopefully guide them before they do something wrong. Yeah. You know, how about you go try this tactic? What would you have done? Okay, well, try doing this. Um, I think can make a difference, but I've definitely made people feel bad. I mean, it's not that I'm, I've made, it's, it's hard to find that line. And there are yeah. times where you can go over the line in bluntness, where you can go over the line to where then the person stops being receptive to the feedback That's the, yeah. and the wall goes up and then you've kind of lost them for a little right. while. And I think, I mean, I guess the tip I've learned from others, and it sounds like it's a lot about in that the closer you can have it in time to the moment where you observe it, it becomes much more like, oh, I just saw you do this, but that seems... Like there could be a better way. Would you agree as compared to, so that's where I think I find myself at the end of a shift and, and most times not being able to summarize it in a great way. Cause there were often a few things I had already talked to you about. Ideally yeah. it's rare that somebody has a bad shift. I think it's usually that they did a few things that I would do differently. And it's hard to know if you do have a bad shift with a resident, was that just their bad day? Or is there a pervasive problem? And we struggled with that within the residency that people don't want to give hard feedback. People don't want to go up to a resident and say, wow, there's something really wrong with how you're putting things together and I can't put my finger on it. But, mm." and so I think we tend to focus more on the concrete things. Yeah. Well, you just (laughs) gave an aha moment there. Yeah. For you, like, it sounds like you try to get people comfortable to say like, I can't put my finger on it. Because I think I... Mm -hmm. I'm filtering things unless I can concretely, I can really explicitly say it was this. But if it's not, if it's a gestalt and I, I could just go by like, boy, we didn't jive today. I don't know why, but I hope you could do better at that. That feels yeah. less concrete and therefore I shut up often. Right. And it's not as useful to the resident just to hear like, right. wow, seemed like you just had a bad day. I mean, that's not helpful. But for some of those things that aren't just super specific. You know, I really feel like you should have known that that patient needed rabies prophylaxis and had more of an idea about what that is. Like, okay, great. That's super easy. But when you get into the personality things, the flow things, when you get into some of more of the executive functioning about how do you task switch and how do you do multiple things at once, which is part of our job, how do you prioritize? Those are the things that I think are harder. Um, But they're the ones that in the long term might end up being more useful depending on the resident or depending on the person that you're working with. Because this isn't just a problem relating to residents. We work with nurses. No, we're all, not, right. like We're part of a team and there are a lot of moving parts on the team. Right. Do you... Uh, oh, boy, I just had that. Do you have... Um, <laughs> oh, what a great interviewer I am. <laughs> just sit back and You got a list of questions. <laughs> oh, well, I, I think that was the problem. I looked down and I'm like, oh. And then I just lost what I was going to go with. Well, I think I, what I was going to say is um, how often do you use the technique of like not saying let's you had a bad shift, but starting with, so how did that shift go? And try to get somebody to reflect before uh, you give yeah. them feedback. Because sometimes maybe that's what I need. I've wondered if I'm underutilizing that tool. I felt like it went suboptimal. <laughs> but if that person comes back with the specifics and I can just go, yeah, that sounds yep. like good. Then that seems like a... They got me out of my own mind of not being able to articulate it. Yeah. I think for me, it kind of goes back to what I mentioned about how do I, 
how do I approach the learner that I'm working with? I do that with pretty much every single medical student. I do it with a lot of the you interns. Yeah. And then as you get further along, I feel like the second and the third year, the the upper level residents are a little bit more self-aware when something really doesn't go well. Yeah. And then in those situations, it's more of if if I feel like there really was a disconnect. You know, if I'm hearing the excuses about why that intubation didn't happen, that then oh. we'll probably focus yeah, on that. Yeah. Um, but I think every single student I start with, how did this shift go? And and probably 80% of the time, their opinion matches mine. 20% of the time, it doesn't. And maybe one or two within that 20%. Like, they're like, I thought it was a great shift. And I'm like, wow, I thought you were horrible. Uh. <laughs> and here's why. <laughs> but I can't put it into those words. So there, I, I filter a lot of things. Like, I have a do. lot of inside voice thoughts. And then there's what actually comes out of my mouth, which I try and keep constructive and useful and make sure that it's <laughs> something that the learner is going to remain open to. That's funny. Yeah, I think I I feel the same way. <laughs> but I I, uh, I I I wanted to ask about uh, another. You had kind of talked about your procedural training mm-hmm. effort, and since emergency medicine and I'll say residents in general are so focused on procedural skills, are there any f- bits of wisdom that you've seen that help people develop safer skills faster or better competency faster? Again, back to that. Ec- novice to expert level is there anything in particular you've seen that talking like within the residency spectrum or talking for people because i know the focus i'll I'll say in general because i think you could say yes within the residency but i think even as um, an early career mid-career there's still new things you're trying to learn whether it's a Uh, new procedure, a new way of doing the procedure, or a rare procedure. I hate the new white ultrasound machines because I just haven't played with them as much. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and so it keeps on happening. You're right. Yeah. There are always new So I kind of like, what is, like, sometimes I think I, well, you just used the word play. I find myself, the sooner I can play with something, yeah. whether it's in a sim lab or it's somebody's passing out a piece of equipment that we might should have like at a staff meeting Mm -hmm. hands-on i just do so much better that way and i know that about myself anything else you know i think you can't be good at something if you don't have just the basic medical knowledge behind it yeah and so i think as i've gone along and i'll bring back up ultrasound because when i trained as a resident we had an ultrasound machine one that was about the size of a refrigerator that we rolled around and maybe did a couple of fast exams during my entire residency. I placed three ultrasound guided lines during my residency and the rest were with landmarks Yeah. and the digging around that we used to do for subclavians and for landmarks for IJs. Um, and so, you know, just for my own personal journey with that, I found that then I need to go back and almost retrain myself. And some of that was being pushed by the residents because this is something that's a lot more a part of what we do every day. But I still have my weaknesses. Again, yeah. they get us a new ultrasound machine and it's a cognitive switch to look at that and go, okay, I know what I want to do. I have the basics about what probe do I want right, and right, right. when do I want M mode, but the specific things about how do I get or this little line to go. And I just... It's always changing. And so I think it really does come down to that hands-on, but you have to have the basic knowledge behind the procedure before you can figure out what you want to do with it. So you'd kind of like that bit of wisdom is like trying to study what's your goal, what are the major pitfalls, like yeah. how, do you, how have experts distilled down what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would also say you have to decide you can't be perfect at everything, nor yeah. should you even vaguely try to be. And I think that there's also that personal line about with anything where what's the line that you have to get to, to be good so that you're going to take good care of your patients and accept that I'm going to be better at doing these 17 procedures and that this one I'm going to struggle a little bit more with, but that I can still do it well enough that I'm not a menace to society and that I'm not (laughs) out there doing wretchedness upon the world. Right. Um, And so I think there's also a little component of picking your battles about what yeah the work i think some to. of our borderline like i'll i'll say like extensor tendon repair like i don't think it's probably that don't hard do <laughs> i don't think it's probably that hard if i had a practice where i was like in a distant far away with no hand surgeons i'd probably try to pick it up um it's very difficult to maintain that skill when we yeah. always have a hand person on, yep. which is probably the opposite of other places the flip side is you know mm-hmm. Putting in lines is probably something that you're less likely to do in 
a distant practice compared to... And I think if there are things that you don't do, once you are out of residency where your focus is learning how to do these things, I think that you need to find something or force yourself to go back and review the things that you're a little bit sketchier on. Right. And so every couple of years, I'll redo PALS or the neonatal resuscitation course. Not because it's something that's required as a merit badge necessarily, but because I find that going through pediatric medication doses every couple of years is a good thing just because it keeps it more at the forefront of my mind. And so I've done several things with my CME helping to try and, I guess I've done several things with my CME trying to figure out what are those holes that I feel like I need to brush up on this now. Yeah. Do you, um, it's funny. One of my practices is sometimes before a night shift for us starts at 11, that regions Mm -hmm. like, the family will have gone to bed and there's this little window of like, I've got a few extra minutes. I'm wide awake. I might be starting to sip something caffeinated. Like I've tried to review like four steps of a crike mm-hmm. before a shift or review some key drug doses so that I just replay them. I think that helps, <laughs> <laughs> but they're often rare enough procedures. I, I will never probably know for sure, but at yeah. least it, it tells me I'm, ready to turn around and do it or at least i'm gonna be as ready as i'm gonna be it's not like i can generate more cases yeah i probably could but i don't want to do that that way so um yeah so i guess it's trying to figure out how you pick those procedures that you know you might have to be on deck for and um and have the comfort level and having said that i ran our co-ran with jesse nelson our procedure labs for the residents for almost my entire time as assistant program director, which meant that multiple times a year, I wasn't necessarily doing the crikes or the yeah. lines or the thoracotomy with the residents or the suprapubic catheter. I mean, pick any of these things that we don't right. do all that much. Um, but it's, I found that that was very helpful yeah. because then you have to know what the troubleshooting steps are and you have to know really what the landmarks are to be able to help talk them through that. Right. So I found that being involved in, helping teach other people some of those things made a difference. Yeah. Um, It's one of the things now that I've moved on from that. I'm actually going to stay teaching one or two labs a year, which I'm going to try and keep my fingers in because I think it's really a good opportunity to make sure that I stay on top of that, at least for the procedural side of things. Yeah. Are there any um, um, other pitfalls that you see Again, I am kind of focused on the early career physician that you see them getting into either in in explicitly at work or around um, financial or personal life or the balance of that, um, which yeah, I'm try not to use the balance <laughs> that you would that you either if you had a friend who was early in their career or that you would try to explicitly tell them about or I think. Uh, that's a pretty broad question, so I'll pick just one little aspect to talk about. But it's about. perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but it's perfect, yeah. Um, I think since I have always been as a faculty at an academic institution, I think that my view of things probably focuses a little bit more that are getting in on people that are in, getting into academics or getting into administration. Sure. Um, and so it's... I think as people get into their early careers, I think it's important still to think about what do you want to do yeah. as your side thing? Because I think almost everybody goes and does their clinical shifts. And even in community practice, you go and do your clinical shifts, but a lot of people are involved in something that they find interesting on the side. Right. They're on the sepsis committee. They're doing something as a project. And it's not necessarily that the people in the community are doing things that are academic projects or formal quality projects, but maybe they are. And I think as a new faculty, you have to decide what you're interested in and what you really want to get into. And then figure out how to make that happen, knowing that there are going to be plenty of other things that you might be asked to do by your department head, by other people that right. want things done. How do you, when do you say yes and no? Yeah. And I don't know that there's, ne- there's the right answer to any of that, but I think it's trying to decide if I'm saying yes or no to something, what is it going to do to me? 
Yeah. And what is that going to mean going forward? Am I saying yes to doing something that I have no interest in at all, but I know that it's a one-year commitment and that it's something that's really necessary and it's going to set me up as someone who might be a go-to person in the future. That might be worth it. If you're saying yes to something that is a lot of time, a lot of effort, and it's not something that really enriches your life, then I think you have to debate whether it's... If you say no, how do you say no to that? Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I talked to Jesse about this quite a bit, I think, on the podcast and then probably even offline that I still try to use the, if you can't say hell yes, <laughs> you, you should say, say yes. no. <laughs> and you can also learn from many ways online how to say no. In yes. Ways I that may make you better. But, <laughs> but uh, if you say no too many times because it's not the perfect thing, people yeah. are going to stop asking. And there's some balance there that you have to strike. And I think early in your career, that is... There's definitely like a calibration that changes mm-hmm. over the years. Like early, there's probably a lot more yeses that are not hell yeses. I probably give a lot more hell no's now than right. <laughs> than I ever did. But again, it's because I kind of know what I'm doing and what my niche yeah. is. Yeah. Well, and I don't think you have that worry that people are going to stop asking at this right. point. Like I think you've built other people know your niche and yeah. your skills and know who you are. And it's likely that they're still begging to have any part of you they can get. And yeah. it's a challenge to keep that in. Check. Yeah. Do you? Uh, I wanted to ask you about your dad a little bit and how okay. he influenced your career. So just to kind of summarize, um, Bob worked for many, many years as an emergency physician um, before the specialty, and then after, and taught and trained at Regions. So I'm curious on just obviously he had some impact on you, I'm sure. And so, would you want to share any ways on how how that how his seeing his career early on in your life made you want to end up being in the same thing? Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because I didn't grow up wanting to be my father. I mean, I didn't grow up, grow up rejecting that. That yeah. wasn't to say that there was anything negative there. It wasn't there. like, Oh, I just want to be like him. No, there is no question. I was going into engineering when I was in, when I was an undergrad. No question at all. Had never even really considered medicine. Loved science. Loved math. Was, you know, the total nerdy, geeky, pick whatever word you want to describe that. And I knew as a kid, I saw a lot of what he did and the stresses of it. It was the, you know, after a shift that he was sleeping on the couch for a little while because with the the demands that we have with shift work and bouncing back and forth, it's a hard physical life. Yeah. Um. And that can definitely affect your family life. You know, going into when I actually decided that I did want to do medicine and emergency medicine, it was that I had taken the purely nepotistic job of an ERT, a tech or a nursing assistant analog, um, just because it was a good part-time job that paid really well that my dad could get me. Like, it, it was absolute Bob Doms got me a job. Yeah. But honestly, I walked into the ER and it was just this this epiphany moment where the clouds parted and the angels sang and the light shined down and I was like, whoa, this is what I need to do. What was I thinking? Yeah. And so honestly, he didn't he didn't push early on. Yeah. Trying to say do anything. My parents right. always told me I could be anything when I grew up, but just don't be a teacher because my mom's a teacher, um, like a public school teacher and principal. And so <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was this open field. Just don't go into public education. Nice. Um, and then honestly, once I started working in the ER, I realized I really do love this. But Bob was really careful not to push me. Yeah. Even after that ERT oh, yeah. experience. Yeah. Even after that. And even after I decided I was going to medical school and then got into medical school and was looking for right. residency, yeah. he was very cautious around me. Yeah. And what I would hear after the fact and from someone else was like, oh, your dad's so proud of you and he's talking so much about you. But he really tried, I think, very intentionally yeah. not to push me to go into emergency sure. medicine. Um, and... If he had pushed me, I think I still would have ended up here. So I don't know that I would have been the kind of person that would have, you know, dug my little heels in and said, no, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Um, but it was just sort of an interesting pathway. And then it wasn't until I actually was back at Regions as a faculty. So post-residency, um, since I went to, I went right. away for residency. And it wasn't really until I came back 
that finally we had a dinner one night and he just went on and on about like, this is so awesome that you do this. And I love seeing you at work. And yeah, it was, it was really nice to hear that at the end of it. But I think he was very guarded. Well, that's cool. On purpose. I think he was trying yeah, not no, to I mean, I think, unduly influence I think me. A lo- I'm sure that was actually really hard. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it takes a lot of, um, to try to create this environment that's, that's, um, that's about you and not about him. Yes. And, and it's interesting you describe it in that way. Because, I don't know. It was always about Bob. Well, <laughs> that's why it was so hard for him. He used to take my academic papers and cross off my name and submit them to his department head at the time saying, look, I published something. Oh, and he'd be like, that God. says Rachel, not Robert. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Scholarly activity. I'm going to travel to present this yes uh, but no you, i think it was hard for him well to, but to i not think the way you describe it is like you probably had a pretty peripheral idea of even what emergency medicine was mm-hmm. because it didn't sound like he brought all the details of that home no. and so that the only like you had the main influence is like he like you got the job and you started to see yeah. did you see him practicing when you were in ert yeah. and did that do you think have any I mean, as you reflect on it? It must have. But honestly, at that point, I think it was more that once I started working in the ER, people were coming up to me and saying, your father is the most incredible clinician. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I'm wondering. Maybe it wasn't And so I think there was a reinforcement that way. Yeah. 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 But I think that it was... and then beyond that and beyond just the him, I think it was just seeing that you could, the difference that you could make and you know, right. the acute interventions. Like, I just really loved what happens in an ER. Well, and I think you even found, like, there's ways to bring some of that engineering procedure lab. And, mm-hmm. like, there's a lot of, yeah. I mean, it's not capital E engineering, but it's, you know, it's the it's the aspects of knowing there's a little bit of math, there's a little bit of physics, there's a little bit of... Um, of everything and all of it. And that's what I think. Yeah. And a lot of interpersonal skills. <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah, that is definitely true. Do you have any um, uh, other people that you look to besides Bob or um, either that you currently view as, uh, I don't want to put it on a pedestal, but some kind of like that you try to emulate either behaviors or people specifically or roles that you think um, still serve to guide you as you're trying to figure out through your mid-career where you want to go? I think that there are aspects of a lot of people. Yeah. I don't think that I have one defined mentor right. who I'm going to grow up to be that person. Yeah. Um, and I think what I found myself doing is looking around at what different people do well okay. and kind of admiring the yeah. other aspects. You know, sure. we work with someone who runs operational meetings who can run the best and tightest operational meeting on earth. Right. And that is an amazing skill yeah. and to be able to look at that and go, Oh, okay. And then we have another colleague that I work with that is fantastic at generating ideas about education and educational research and where should we be going next. Right. And so I think I kind of pick and choose yeah. aspects of people sure. that I try and emulate and say, okay, how could I be more like that person? Yeah. Or do I want to be more like that person? Right. Or is this their niche and this is not compatible with my personality? Right. And are there any particular ways that you think that you, this might gets a little bit into like mindfulness or something or ways that you know are methods that you use to try to discern those tough things? Like, is this me or is this not me? Or is it pretty clear to you all the time? I don't think it's always clear, but I think there's that. I I don't have a problem trying something and yeah. seeing whether it works and whether yeah. it fits with me. And so I think there's a lot of experimentation. But it seems like to me... But I don't have a problem rejecting something that, straight out. That, yeah. that you're, that, well, that you're pretty quick to make that discernment a mm-hmm. lot of the times. Like that you're self-assured enough to kind of go like, yep. yeah, I tried that, not me. Yeah. And I'm happy to tell other people what's not going yeah. to work too. <laughs> Hell no. Which, hell no, yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I, I, I mean, much to your credit, because I think that's where, I mean, I would look to you in that way, because you, again, um, I think are able to feel comfortable in yourself and um, know what helps you. Like you talked about the pleasure items of like mm-hmm. the pen and things like that. <laughs> yep. I love bringing that up later in the, the pleasure items in the podcast. But the, um, but just um, trying to sort out um that I think for myself, 
I, I know some of those things, but then I sometimes get in part periods of my life where I second guess it. And, sure. um, and I don't like that. And I don't think anybody does. It's trying to figure out how to get out of that. Um, I'm often looking to other people and kind of sometimes asking tips, but sometimes it's just a matter of letting everything be quiet, see what, I don't know if I want to call it what your heart says, yep. but you know, that's the kind no, of thing. I think you have to listen to your gut feeling you about what's going to work for you. And then if there's something that's a maybe, try it. Try it. Well, and I think even like you, we were talking about with your career change, sometimes you just try it mm-hmm. and realize that it's not it's not the end of the world if you yeah. end up not liking it. Yep. And it's a big try it. It's not a small try it. Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll try to do my notes this way <laughs> versus I will quit this job and start a new job, right. which is a different level, but still yes. is a very different leaps. Game. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great. Do you, do you, um, do you have any, my, my common wrap up question is recommending the specialty with, if you, you, uh, have some girls in your house mm-hmm. and, um, do you have any qualms about recommending this knowing that we just talked about your dad in this context if they were to no. come up to you and say hey what what if this is something for me can i go be an ert at well your- and you and you bring that up and it's actually uh my boyfriend's 13 year old currently wants to be a neurosurgeon but her vision of what a neurosurgeon does <sighs> it's not spot on but i've been <laughs> really oh she's so sweet about it but yeah no she's like well i need to take communications and i need to speak spanish I'm like, I don't think you have an idea what surgeons do, but okay, sounds great. Like, I've just tried to be supportive right. as they go forward. And so for, for the child side of things, I think whatever people want to do on a given day, like what you're choosing at 13 is probably not going to be what you are at 20 or 40. And so I think it's my job just to encourage Create the, the environment into it. <laughs> yeah. But, but the bigger question about would I say don't go into medicine? No. Even yeah. with all of the stressors, with the financial issues and documentation stresses and everything else that comes along with what we do and yeah. the fact that this is always going to be a stressful job, you know, dealing with people that other that other systems don't necessarily deal with. So yeah. again, getting back to the difficult patients, you know, that I, I still think that there's enough to be found that for the right person this is this is still a fantastic specialty and I wouldn't warn people away from medicine. I wouldn't warn people away from emergency medicine. Yeah. And that's, um, do you have you, let me ask it a different way. And this is a new way of asking questions. Have there been points in your life, like in your career so far where you might've had a different answer because you were getting so, no, I don't think so. Actually, that's fine. (laughs) I, uh, I, I think I examined this for myself before I chose to go into medicine. Yeah. And I, you know, like you said, I tend to be the kind of person who makes a decision and is okay right, just sticking right, with it. Right. And, and there are days where I'm cursing whatever it is that's happened or whoever it is that's imposed something upon me. You know, there are always these stressors, but I think if you go into things for the right reasons and you keep the mindset that there are still positives in it, yeah, that... I haven't had the the second guessing emergency medicine or medicine in general. And if I were, you know, the college kid again, I would go through the same process. And I know we talked to a lot of our colleagues who say, I don't know if I would. Right. And I don't know if that was, they didn't choose right for their specialty or something different happened, or they're just not framing it correctly for it to be a positive. I don't quite know why people say that, but it's not my answer. Yeah. I don't. And that's kind of why I'm exploring for the people that do or, that said, like, there was a time when I would have, mm-hmm. um, so that I can kind of try to explore that. Because I do think it's one of those, I don't know, like, would, re- would you recommend from a patient satisfaction metric? But, like, if you can't recommend your own job, it's, like, mm-hmm. there might be I'm trying to learn how either it's the system around you or you're just in a pure inability. It's not maybe the right, the, that, that you're... That you're yourself looking for a change if you if you can't answer that. Yeah. But. And even coming to the point of I'm changing something, you know, even looking back, like I would still probably do the assistant. Oh, no, not probably. I would still do the assistant program director right. position. I would still stay in it. I, I learned so much and got involved with operations and with all sorts of things that that I never envisioned myself being involved with. But it was more because I was kind of that I was open to taking the journey. And, and it, looking back, I wouldn't refuse it the second time around. And it sounds like you kind of mentioned um, this in a way when you said um, having s- your s- your side gig, I think the term you used. Yes. 
like in some level you envision like that's always going to be part of your career yes. is that and it may not be a job side gig it might mm-hmm. be something personal like a hobby or something but like a house full of snakes yeah <laughs> we haven't gotten the snakes yet <laughs> we have a house full of snakes for anyone who doesn't literally <laughs> these are not small snakes like they're safety measures um uh so side gigs <laughs> side gigs thank you i mean that's i think that's actually a lot of the benefits of this job and i will say specifically emergency medicine because of its shift work the sure. downsides are you can't have a routine in life you yeah. can't like there's a number of downsides yep. like you mentioned with bob sleeping on the couch kind of thing but then um but then the upsides are that you have a lot of opportunity to when yeah. you're off you're off and yep. to develop that however you think whether it's administratively or hobby or yeah. church or nothing. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that have figured that out. Yeah. Um, and I would say even in medicine in general, if you want to start changing your career and adding administrative aspects or teaching or research, there's almost always some way you can figure that out. It may not be an easy road, but you can just because you're an MD doesn't mean you have to do the same thing. No. And honestly, our, our salaries in general, the pre- the societal prestige of being a physician opens up a lot of opportunities right. that that other people may not have, and I I think that's what I constantly I try to figure out how do I oh particularly with our residents as they're leaving I I kind of wanna I've, I've in fact I might even have drafted one of these one year sort of like Brad's advice on. Now that you're going to be a big a big person, where you're going to get a big paycheck kind of thing is like live like live if you if you live at some means that allows you some job flexibility yes. you're going to afford yourself an enormous amount of um, options whether that first job you took didn't actually turn out to be what you wanted or and if you're not locked into a house a divorce uh, a um, another a car or something that you boat not that I, th- I don't think there's a lot of people making grossly irresponsible decisions, but I think the house one is probably the hardest is sometimes you like, you really start to tie yourself to that check yeah. or a location and it's hard to. Well, and we talk, when we interview medical students who want to be in the residency, which again, now I'm not doing this year since I transitioned, yeah. but the number of people who say, oh, well, you know, I want to work this and then I want to go do doctors without borders or I want to go do this internationally right. for a month or two a year. It's interesting how much of that falls by the wayside right? as people get more locked down. Yeah, that's a good point because I think I had been thinking about it in the terms of like, oh, I don't like this job or this group is too not me and I want to move. But but there's a lot of it is like, hey, you can some of those dream types of things. Keep the idealism of your youth. And some of that might be, at least my quick reaction is like, you know, you have kids or you have other like things about your life but if that's that's still something that because you describe the financial and uh, prestige aspects of mm-hmm. having that job you can often still use that cushion that you might have been using on a bigger house for something that yep. lets you buy a month off the schedule or um, do something um, like take a sabbatical or mm-hmm. um, take extra training in an area that on the side things like that um, certainly that's something that I've done a lot of over the years and try to recommend keeping that option open so that and remembering it so that when you yes. when you are starting to feel cranky you can go like well what changes could I make and be realistic like oh I could finally start getting a house sitter even though or a house um, cleaner or something like that or I well and that gets back to like the little the pens and the covered parking and I'm right. not giving up my cleaning lady yeah I could clean my own house but I'm just not going to yeah and and how and when you have that, um, realizing what kinds of like sort of having gratitude for it in the moment too, mm-hmm. like when you come home to that clean house and you're like, awesome, boy, that was money spent for me to be happy. Yes, and I and I'm happy to do that. And now I'm more likely to maybe write that article yep. that somebody isn't quote paying me to write right. or <laughs> to go teach the EMS like to spend a little more time if I'm interested in like being the medical director for my local EMS agency, you know, there's lots of little things that you could do. Yeah. And, and it's figuring out what fr- the balance Freeing are. out the balance of things. So, 
Well, it's been a lot of fun to talk with you. Me I too. very much appreciate you spending time with me. Um, I don't know that I have any other questions, at least at the moment. That's um, totally okay. I'm wondering if you have any other things you want to share with the rest of the world. I'll just follow up that all of our snakes are in appropriate cages and enclosures and we have nothing venomous. If you, if you have any questions about where and how to shop for snakes uh, responsibly for, um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure Rachel has some oh, yeah. information for you. We can get you set up. Yeah. yeah. And you're limiting it to snakes, but there's a whole lot more than snakes. Oh, snakes, lizards, degus, guinea pigs, chickens, dogs, fish. Millipedes. Our millipedes just had babies. Um, all sorts of exciting things happen at our house, and we have very nature-oriented uh, kids. Um, so if you're looking for a pet-sitting gig, don't go to Rachel's search. Yeah. You well, need experienced, experienced applicants only. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but willing no, to follow don't. directions. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't have any other specific questions or anything else major. <laughs> no, all this right. Was just, it was a good chance to talk and oh, I appreciate I pre- you inviting me. Oh, thanks for, for being here and uh, thanks again. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. Please consider subscribing to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts or you can listen on the web at positivelydeviant.audio. There you can also leave a comment, tell your colleagues, or tweet me up. It helps spread the word. You can also leave your feedback to make them better, or you can give me your guest suggestions. And here's a standard disclaimer. The thoughts and views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals alone. No one you heard here represents the organizations where they work. Now that you've heard that, let's shut it down. Until next time, thanks again for listening.